Okay, hello everyone. I can say happy Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer is a holiday that begins here in New York already this evening, but obviously in other parts of the world. It's already uh, in New Zealand. I think it's uh, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We have some New Zealand viewers, that's why I'm mentioning it. And um, uh, Lagba Omer is the 33rd, I mean Lag is 33, for the 33rd day of the Omer. And... Uh, it's the 49-day period that between Passover and Shavuos, which is focused on personal refinement and character development. Historically, it's a time when, um, 3,330 years ago, exactly, the Jews left Egypt, and then they're marching toward Mount Sinai. So like 33 days from, after, uh, from that exodus from Egypt. But the 33rd day of the Omer is a special day among the Omer itself, for primarily two reasons. One is the yard site. It's the passing of Rabbi Shimon Bayechai, one of the greatest sages, Talmudic sages, who is also, the, you could say, the father of uh, Jewish mysticism in the sense that he authored the Zohar, which is the classic work of uh, esoteric thought. And um, uh, Rabbi Shimon, Shimon Bayechai, or otherwise sometimes known by his acronym, Rajbi. And on this day he passed away, and, it was, and he asked personal request he made to his students and to generations to come that it would be a day of celebration. You know, and that's exactly what's done. So I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, around a half a million Jews make a pilgrimage every year to Miran, is the place where he's buried in northern Israel, near Tzfat. And uh, it's all online today. You can see it. Literally half a million people. Um, all fulfilling this request that he made so many years ago, almost um, 2,000 years ago. And uh, we'll talk about that in a moment some more. And the second reason it's considered a celebration is because the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva, among which Rajbi was one of those students, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, um, died in an epidemic, in a plague that took place in these first 33 days. It was resulting from their, the, the way the Talmud puts it, they did not show respect. They did not treat each other with respect. And that caused a plague that uh, killed them out. And this is the reason that this, the Omer is a time you'll find that we don't do uh, weddings and no extra celebrations or music and so on. But on the Nagba Omer, the epidemic and plague ended. And therefore, that's another reason for the celebration. They were connected the two factors because Rabbi Shimon Bayechai, as I just mentioned, was one of the students of Rabbi Akiva, but he did not die in the plague because he was one of the students that did show honor and respect. And I thought it appropriate, therefore, to, to title this class and talk about this topic of respect. The issue, the power of respect and what it really means. Even though it's like a word that we use, but uh, it's uh, one of those innocuous words that people don't necessarily always appreciate significance of what is respect exactly. So that's going to be the discussion here. And obviously connected to this day, and I'll refer to that later on. So let's get straight to respect. So if you, um, uh, how important is respect for the welfare and the health of a society or a community or family or relationship? It's a good question to ask because we usually think in terms of the ingredients for for successful um, relationships. You'll hear the word love, the sensitivity, Respect as well, but how, how high of it, how much value do you give it? And then the next question to ask, of course, is if you were to, to rate the, the quality of respect in our times and in our modern world, how would you rate it? As being high, average, low, affecting both in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. How important and how significant and how... Uh, how how, how uh, predominant is respect? And then, of course, what are the consequences of a society or of a life without um, showing respect to others? Which, of course, is also connected to self-respect, which we shall talk about as well. So these are questions that, um, as always, if you want to really understand the gravity and the power of any type of experience, you want to also always ask, what is its value? What is its importance? And most importantly, what would it be like if we didn't have it? 
because that gives a little light, shines a light that is able to identify how important it is. Like in any scientific experiment, if you want to know how important something is, you test it by taking it out of the equation and then seeing what happens to the either to the to the chemical uh, situation or any other type of uh, phenomenon. So, what would life be like without it? And therefore, then learn to appreciate what it what what its role is. And of course, it all goes back to what I mentioned before, the Talmud making such a fuss, which sounds like very strange, that people not showing respect should die out in a plague. That's like a serious uh, consequence. That's not like a small matter. You know, today, we don't find that. Just because people don't have respect, we don't see anyone dying because of it. And, um, and of course, the bigger question may even be, is how did these 24,000 students, who are such great scholars, they were not small people, how could they have stooped to a point where they would not be respectful to each other? And uh, especially considering their great teacher was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, maybe the greatest sage of them all, greatest Talmudic sage, um, has a statement, one of his most famous statements is that uh, the dictum, the mitzvah, the commandment in the Torah that says, love your fellow as yourself. So Rabbi Akiva says, in Hebrew, this is a fundamental principle in the Torah. No, it is fundamental, it's foundational principle, an axiom to love your fellow as yourself. So how could his own students, who definitely were studying and delving and, and analyzing and probing into Rabbi Akiva's, their teacher, great teacher's teachings, miss the whole boat, they miss the, the whole point. His most important teaching of all, they were unable to fulfill. So all this adds up to a somewhat of a, a dramatic question is exactly what is this thing called respect and why is it so significant and how could they have been so off? And of course, always with the final question is, what is how does it apply to us? Relevance and what can it teach us and what can we learn from it in our own personal lives to make our lives uh, happier, more fulfilling, more healthy? Because that's what it always comes down to. What is the mes- message to us? and our own lives. And um, so it also will compel us to look at ourselves and look at our own ability to respect both ourselves and others. And what are the impediments that would stop us from doing that? And of course, what are the benefits? On the other side, what are the liabilities if a person does not have that uh, element called respect? Covet in Hebrew, covet. So as always, I go back to the, I'd like to go back to the roots of things, instead of looking at like in medicine, there's remedial medicine, like a Band-Aid or a painkiller, and then there's an, a symptomatic medicine dealing with symptoms, and then there's what we call a root medicine, which is getting to the root of an issue, instead of just dealing with the symptoms. So, as I discussed last week, and many, almost every week, in some way, one way or another, you always want to know, if you want to know what the healthy version of yourself is, it's always best to go back as early as you can in life, uh, when we were uh, newborn children, because that's the purest and healthiest version of ourselves. You know, technology, for example, uh, iOS, uh, iPhone 8 or X or whatever it is, is better than an iPhone 7, and 7 is better than a 6, and better than a 5. The same thing with all operating systems, and the same with all other technologies. But I would submit that when it comes to human beings, version 1.0, which means as we were born, when it was like freshly fallen snow before we became jaded and affected by the disappointments and the betrayals and the duplicity of life, that was the best version of ourselves. And then it's downhill since then. I don't mean to be depressing, but I mean to say we are never as pure as we get older as we were when we were younger. However, not all is lost, and that's not meant to be a fatalistic statement. On the contrary, it's meant to be, mean that you can reconnect to the you as you were in a pure form of yourself, which is basically our, uh, our younger version, our childhood version, without necessarily going back to childhood in the sense the naivete or the immaturity, but to have a combination of both the seasoning and experience that we gain in adulthood, but together not lose the, the um, I would say, the innocence and the, and, the, um, and the clarity, and I would even say the sense of adventure and free abandon that we, we had as children. And it also comes down to this discussion of, of respect and self-respect. So we all know that, um, or I hope we know, 
that many, the root of many, many issues in our lives comes down to our sense of feeling secure or insecure. An insecure person that's, if doesn't have self-respect or self-esteem or self-confidence, it's going to have a dramatic implications in so many areas of a person's life because you're always looking to compensate for that. You don't have self-esteem, so then you're always looking over your shoulder, always ready for critique, don't have that inner confidence, second-guessing yourself, the hard to make decisions, have to sometimes show a face of bravado and try to compensate for your own inner sense of inadequacy or insecurity. So it has dramatic implications. And all of us have elements of it. There's no such thing on earth as a human being that doesn't have any insecurities. The question is the measure. But the more insecure a person is, the more it's going to undermine their lives. Now, the difference is some people are aware of it and some are not. Some, their pride and their insecurity doesn't let them acknowledge how insecure they are because it's too embarrassing. It's too much shame. There's too much fear of exposure. So what they, people like that will do is come in the denial and all kinds of forms of distortions or smoke rings. And if you're smart, you cover your tracks well. And you can create a whole new persona that's not really even you because that persona appears to be very confident. But in truth, beneath the, behind the scenes, beneath the veneer, lies a person who's not that confident. So self-respect, of course, is key to so much in life because when you have that, then you don't have to... Um, you're not afraid of other people taking away your turf. And you are very easy for you to coexist with others because you are confident in your own strengths and your own skills and just your own being. Just you feel comfortable in your own skin. Now, of course, a person who's lacking self-respect is most likely not going to respect other people either because they, the word respect is not in their uh, lexicon. And because they feel themselves inadequate, they're not going to necessarily suddenly... Um, respect others because, the, that, because without self-respect you usually do not extend true respect. I'm not saying you can't worship somebody or you can't latch on to someone and think they're your hero, but that's more of a delusional um, crutch as opposed to a true shy sign of respect. People who have self-respect, as I said, can coexist and show respect to others. So it lies at the heart of really what makes us tick. And, um, and of course the, the usual suspect, the usual culprits of what caused a person to lose their self-confidence is our parents and our early childhood and, and, and education and society, which often undermines our own um, self-confidence by uh, either a lot of critique, constant expectations, broken promises, all kinds of different things that, uh, that can break and, and, and undermine, I would say, and invalidate and weaken the resolve and confidence of any child in impressionable years growing up. And that's reinforced in life, too, in our schooling, and then in our communities and our society. You have yourself a full-blown version of a person who deals with a lot of inner, self, inner low self-esteem and inner sense of inadequacy, as I said, and even to the point of self-loathing when it comes to certain extremes. And I'm not even mentioning abuse. Yeah. You throw that into the equation that always going to always going to uh, always going to amplify any of our own senses sense of inner uh, lack of self confidence and self respect. So, based on that, it's clearly not just an ingredient that's important in our lives. It's a vital ingredient. It's like oxygen. If a body needs oxygen to breathe, and food and drink to sustain itself, a soul, a spirit, a heart needs. Um, validation. It needs nurturing. It needs respect. And when that respect is not there, you undermine essentially the core um, force that defines who we are and allows us to really navigate this world with a sense of confidence and a sense of direction and ability to make proper decisions. If you take that away from somebody or in some way compromise it, essentially it's going to affect every part of our lives. And most importantly, where it will have the biggest effect is on relationships. When you start dating and starting to have to deal with an emotional, emotional, uh, emotional complexities and intricacies of relationship, that's where it's going to express itself most. Because you can be a very functional person at work or other things because your, emo your inner emotions are not being necessarily exposed or challenged. But when vulnerability comes into the picture, 
that's when you really find out who you are. Are you able to be vulnerable? Are you comfortable with being vulnerable? Can you celebrate vulnerability or are you terrified of it? And that's very much connected straight with that, with that self-respect. A person who has that is, is, is comfortable with themselves and therefore comfortable with being vulnerable because they don't feel they're going to be destroyed or be annihilated if they are vulnerable or if they're hurt because they have resources. A person who's been hurt is going to be very, very terrified of the, con- of the prospect of being hurt again. And we'll have defenses up and all kinds of different uh, layers of armor that will, um, different faces and masks that we wear in order to protect ourselves. <clears throat> so that's regarding self-respect. But let's talk about now the respect of other people. In, in, um, it really comes down to this. Why is it that respect is so, va- so vital? Because it's essentially the validation of your, the, the dignity of the human soul the human spirit. If, for example, you take an attitude, you know, that life is negligible and dispensable and, you know, random, arbitrary. So how much respect do you have to show to things that are arbitrary? Just to give an example, look it up on Google. When we wake up in the morning and get out of bed, we kill thousands, if not tens of thousands of bacteria. Simply our movement after the night's sleep. Who even knows that? Now, it's not significant to us because, so bacteria, what's bacteria? They're invisible, and we don't see the necessity to have them in our lives, even though actually without bacteria we wouldn't have life. But you don't notice it. For some people, it's no big thing, you know, to kill an insect. However, at the heart of our so-called insensitivities in this regard is, is the major, major thing is because we see life as either we are a sense of entitlement or we don't see these uh, creatures or these elements as being that significant. But imagine someone applies that same principle to human beings. Look how the Nazis treated Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, anyone that they thought were uh, mutations. And they had a whole science about it. They looked at it like vermin. We're, clean, we're cleansing the human race. As obscene as it sounds, that was their attitude. That you kill rodents, and you kill bacteria, and you kill uh, infections. And there are some people that are just uh, that are toxic. Now, obviously, I'm not making a case for it. But this is how they convinced themselves and convinced others that some people, they look human, but they're not human. They're just... Just as you find, for example, people are insensitive, they can go hunting for their own sport and kill animals for no particular reason except their own pleasure. So if you extend that a step further, why not humans? So obviously we know that hunting is legal, at least in some ways, and humans are, killing humans are not. But if you think about it, what, what, what comes down to it? Why are they different? You know, if you respect life, you respect life. So it's them, because we see you animals as being inferior, as being whatever they are. But here, by contrast, listen to this story. I've shared this a number of times. So one of the, the, the six Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Hitzler, was a little child walking with his father in a garden. In a, in a, in a, um, and as they were walking and talking, the little boy ripped off a leaf from the tree and began to rub it, you know, as we all often do. And his father reprimanded him, saying, what right did you have to tear that leaf off the tree and interfere with the trajectory of its destiny? That leaf is there, has a purpose, and that purpose you now essentially aborted. For what reason? Just to rub it up. For no particularly productive reason. So think about that, That's the sensitivity to even a leaf on a tree, let alone an animal or a human being. That is called the respect for the dignity of life. Even a leaf on a tree. Because it is, the life, according to this perspective, is not random. And it's not arbitrary. And it doesn't like who really cares. So there's one leaf, there's another billion or trillion leaves. So big thing. No, everything is precise. Imagine someone thinking the same way about, you know, uh, about uh, 75 trillion cells in the human body. They're, they're close to 75, between 30 and 75 trillion cells. Imagine someone saying, you know what, 75 trillion cells, so what? 
we can tamper with a few of them. You could have one cell that's a mutation, one um, toxic cell, and it can wreak havoc and destroy a life. It's 75 trillion. Think of a computer program. It can have millions of lines of code. You add a dot, subtract a dot, and the whole thing, you can destroy the whole thing. Because it's not about quantity. It's not, size does not matter here. It's about quality. And the quality of something that's necessary, even if it's one detail among trillions, in that detail, that is absolutely necessary. That's how the Torah looks at life. Even the life, as I said, of a mineral or a vegetable or a leaf, an animal, how much more so a human being created in the divine image. The fundamental respect of a human being is because they are fundamentally valuable. And even if they're not, you don't understand their value, you have to respect that. And frankly, that's also the root of self-respect. Why do we really respect? Why is it so important to respect yourself? Because not just because you should have a healthy ego and healthy self-esteem. It's because you are, on, you are being honest and truthful and recognizing the value of your life. Because your life is not your own. It was given to you as a gift from a higher place and a greater place. So when you think of it that way, respect links directly into the value of life and to the dignity of life. We live in a world today that's very depersonalized, especially if you take into account the scientific view of life, then most of life is arbitrary. Seven billion people on this planet? Yeah, you could have not existed. You happened to be born. So once you're here, you make the best of it. But you have absolute, indispensable value. So if you don't have that, then, from, then there is no necessity for someone to have total respect. Whereas if you have the perspective that, no, you're here for a reason and a purpose, and that purpose is, and it's necessary, you are necessary to, for the entire purpose of existence to be here, then you deserve respect. It's not just respect to you, it's respect to the engineer that put you here. They say when Mozart presented one of his great symphonies to the Archduke of Austria. So the Archduke, who thought he was some kind of serve music, says to Mozart, he said, Mozart, it's beautiful, but far too many notes. That's what he told Mozart, too many notes. So Mozart reportedly responded, he says, yes, your majesty, but not one more than necessary. That would be like somebody coming into a beautiful, beautiful mansion, palace, and sees hundreds of rooms and so many different aspects and says, you know what, we don't need that room, we don't need that room, without even consulting or discussing it with the person who designed it. Or going to a piece of art and saying, okay, now we can just lobotomize this art and just cut out this piece. Or take a book and say, okay, we'll cut down the chapters. I remember when I was working early years when I was writing many, many years ago, so we had a typist. There was no computers then. There was no word processor. So we had to use the typewriter. So I would type my draft and then it was edited by pen and so on. And I would give it to a typist to, fi- to prepare a final draft. So we, had a, we were testing a new typist who had no clue about writing. But he was a very fast typist. I come in the morning after the night after he, he typed it all up, the final version. <laughs> and I see the whole thing is like he typed everything. But, the, but, he dis, but he basically um, created his own paragraphs. He decided where the par- there were paragraphs. And he decided to just, so I said to him, why did you, why did you, you know, the middle of the second paragraph is only the end of the first paragraph. And, and so I said, why did you do that? He said he wanted the pages to be uniform. So to have five paragraphs on each page, each one had seven lines. So he made all the paragraphs uniform, seven lines, and that was that. So I said to him, no, no, you can't read this. So he said, what do you mean? All the words are there. So he had no clue because he was just like being technical. Why not? He just took the words and stuck them together, whatever. If it's the middle of a sentence, the middle of a paragraph, fine, cut. You know, you can imagine reading a book where the paragraphs are off. Even if every word is there, you'll never figure it out. My point is that in anything that has design and purpose, before you start tampering with it, you have to recognize and realize that maybe some deeper purpose that you're not aware of. King David, there's a classic story, King David. 
King David would sing the praises of God, and he looked. They used to study nature, and see in nature all kinds of lessons. And once he, he said to God, he says to God, you know, I think it was two things. I don't remember what the second one. He says, I understand all the creatures in this world. I understand their purpose, except the lowly spider. Why did you create a spider? He couldn't figure out what a spider's value is. So what happened was, the story goes, the, the story is in the Tanakh, that when King Saul was pursuing David because he felt jealous of him and so on, so the, his soldiers were pursuing and King David was stuck and had nowhere to run. The only place to go was a cave. But the cave would be obviously, once they corner him in there, he wouldn't be able to escape. So he ran to the cave with the hope that they won't think he's there. And God sent a miracle, created a miracle, and a spider came and weaved a web over the mouth of the cave quickly. So when they came there, they recognized that nobody would have gone here because the, 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 the web was there. You know, a web, if it's broken, they'd know someone was in there, but it wasn't broken. So King David realized what God was teaching him, that just because you don't know the purpose of something, it could end up saving your life. And I remember, uh, I'm a boy, I'm from the baby boomers, so uh, in the 50s and the 60s, they decided that if you have too many earaches or whatever, and other colds, that the tonsils, we have tonsils, we're born with tonsils. And in those years, they would just take out your tonsils. Okay, why? Because they didn't see the value of tonsils. There was nothing medically that demonstrated that tonsils have any value. Years later, they discover now that tonsils are actually important for the immune system. But they didn't know it at the time in the 50s and 60s. So today, they don't take out tonsils unless, of course, they get infected or something. But the same thing that still applies, there's two parts of the body can you guess what they are? That doctors and medicines cannot understand what their value is. One is the appendix, and the second is wisdom teeth. Now, the appendix, I think lately they have begun to recognize some of its value, but they're not sure. Not, but there was a time they didn't. Okay. So as long as it was fine, the appendix was there, getting infected, they left it. But no one understood. They thought it was some type of remain from some evolutionary quirk or something like that. Wisdom teeth has no value because you, no one chews back in those teeth. They're called wisdom teeth because they usually come in when you're 19, 20, or that age, where you're supposed to be getting wiser. So very often those teeth cause problems, and they pull them out. You get your wisdom teeth pulled because they're back in the back there, whatever it is. So I remember once having a discussion with someone. Who was, I was talking about this idea. Everything is precise, perfect. Nothing more, nothing less. Like in a computer program, like in Mozart's symphony, like in uh, other parts of uh, the creatures of this world. She said to me, what are you talking about? What about the appendix or the wisdom teeth? So I said, let me ask you something. There are 75 trillion cells in the body. There are thousands of systems and there are hundreds of limbs and organs. All of them, we know exactly how important they are. And if you have out of millions, only two that you don't know, what would be your argument? That shows that all of them are negligible or that these two probably also have a reason. We just haven't figured it out yet. What's the scientific mind say? So if you had, let's say, 998 out of 1,000 systems are worthless or not necessary, and you find two that are necessary, you could say, okay, that's a fluke. But if you have 998 that are absolutely necessary and two don't seem necessary, the wise person says, I just don't know what they are, but I'm not going to come to a conclusion that they're not necessary. That would be ridiculous. So all this leads back to the point of respect, therefore, is actually not a, not a, a, I mean, it has value of its own, but its true significance is because it's a, it's a, what's the word I want to use? It's a affirmation. An affirmation and a declaration that you truly respect the dignity of another person's soul. And when you don't, you're not just not respecting them and it can cause war and hostilities and divisiveness and wars and conflicts, but you're actually undermining the very essence of what makes a human being a human being. Which is why in Jewish thought, respect of another human being isn't just a nice mitzvah, kind thing to do, like a charitable thing to do. It lies at the heart of who we are and how we look at each other.
To give you an example, there's a law that when a person is praying to God and a stranger comes by and says hello to you, so most of the prayers, except one or two, the more you're supposed to stop your prayer and turn and greet them. They see you're praying. It's understandable, you know. You could always say, I'll talk to you later. Come back after they pray. Because it comes to show that God says, do not speak to me and ignore one of my creations. If you want to respect me, respect the people that I've put in this world. And don't think you could hide and say, you know what, I'm now in a religious mode speaking to God. If you speak to God and ignore a person, you're ignoring God too. Which explains a very puzzling statement. Abraham, the great Abraham, our forefather, so it was, of course, the epitome, the love kindness personified. And he had an open home or open tent, open to anyone, stranger. Any stranger could come and be welcome, get a meal, get a place to rest, sleep. And he basically pioneered single-handedly what we call today social justice, the concept of charity, of kindness, of not just me, 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 a life that's all about me, but to be give. A life of giving. Virtue. So the Talmud says that when someone, um, that someone invites guests to the home, greater is the inviting guests to your home, greater than greeting God. And the Talmud says, how do we know this? We learned this from Abraham. Because Abraham was healing from his circumcision. And he was sitting at the, mouth, at the, at the door of his tent, the opening of his tent, and he saw three nomads, strangers, walking through the desert. God came to visit him, from where we learn the concept of visiting the sick. God came to appear to Abraham. And it says, Abraham turned away from God when he saw those strangers to greet them. So the Talmud says, we derive from this, that greeting guests is greater than greeting God. Very good, very beautiful lesson. But how did Abraham know that? How often does God make an appearance to you? Here's God making a, once an unprecedented appearance. Imagine God coming to visit someone in the hospital and then suddenly other people come in and you say, you don't even say, excuse me, just turn away from God. This very sounds very uh, rude. And the answer is because Abraham knew that he wasn't turning away from God. Had he ignored these strangers, that means he's ignoring God's creatures. And God would not see that as respect to God. It would be disrespectful to God if you don't respect my children or my, my creatures in this world. So Abraham knew there's time to speak to God, and there's a time to speak to God's creatures, and when he saw those strangers, he saw that he understood immediately that it's greater than greeting God, because that's greeting God through the strangers, through their dignity, through their divine dignity. So respect lies in this context, in the heart and essence of what, what, who, how we define ourselves and define each other. Basically, a lack of respect to another person is basically denying their birthright, their right to be valuable. And they're basically also rejecting God as he created them. It's like saying to God, you know, I don't respect your creatures. I only respect myself. So that's why it's so vital and why it's so critical for the human for health and, of course, for the well-being of any system. Because it's not just that it creates coexistence and respect, you know, coexistence, there's, uh, there's a mutual respect in any team that of course everyone understands but it goes deeper than that you're actually validating and as I said affirming the significance of every one of those team players or team members or community or for that matter stranger so it's that type of declaration so now let's go to the students of Rabbi Akiva so what happened this only makes the question stronger if it's so vital and as Rabbi Akiva said is the, is the fundamental principle of all, to love another as yourself. How could his own students so miss the point? So one of the explanations given is interesting explanation, and that is, it also gives us a tremendous psychological insight into how human beings can mistreat each other even with good intentions. The students of Rabbi Kiva were great, great sages. They were so passionate about their interpretations and understanding of their ideas 
that they lack the tolerance of their own colleague. So sometimes, you know, you can have two people argue, but they argue with respect to each other. And their goal is to find clarity. But sometimes you can be so passionate about your position that you literally can insult another person. Now, in your mind, you're not insulting them. In your mind, you're just so adamant and so convinced that you're right, you're trying to make your point. So you almost like wring their neck into submission. But that's not, obviously, the way to go. So the students, it wasn't due to their just simply being callous human beings, um, selfish people. It was, on the contrary, it was due to their intensity and their genius. And geniuses can sometimes be extremely intolerant of each other. So it was not due to their weakness, it was due to their strength, which really ended up hurting each other. Now, of course, what was missing was missing was the humility that's necessary, that even when you are a genius, and even if you are creative, and you have very strong opinions, and you are very convinced that your opinions are right, you still have to remember the other person was also created by God, and they may also have strong opinions. And even if you think you're right, there's no, never, never an excuse to show disrespect. Why did they die in a plague? Is precisely because they were on that sensitive level that they should have understood better. You know, people who are just callous to each other, it's also unacceptable, but they are not as, um, they're not, let's put it this way, it's like, uh, what do they say about um, the more sensitive, the more refined a part of your body, the more the more uh, vulnerable it is. You know, when you go, for example, to surgery, God forbid, so you need to really, uh, um, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, I lost the word. What do you do to make sure there's, it's infection-free? You sterilize, sterilize right. You need to have very high levels of sterilization. Why? Because when the body is closed, we, our skin and our hair and our outer layers have enough protection from infections to, a, to, a, to hurt us. When the body is open and the most sensitive organs are exposed, that needs a particular level of sterilization. So people who are on the highest level spiritually are the ones that can cause the most damage. Because when they're insensitive to each other, you're dealing with like the leaders, and the leaders, that creates a lot more problems than something that is on a lower level. So they immediately felt the impact. That type of insensitivity was not tolerable. It's like, you know, think of it like a piece of dust on your eyeball is very irritating, even though that same piece of dust in your finger is insignificant. So for them to be on that level, it caused real damage. But that's an aside. I don't want to talk about that so much. I want to talk about the respect part. So in Kabbalistic uh, this theory, in Kabbalistic literature, it talks about two paradigms. And I'll just explain it a bit. There's a paradigm, it's called like two dimensions, sometimes called two worlds. One is called the world of Tayu, which literally means chaos. And one is called the world of Tikkun, which means repair. Now you've heard of Tikkun Olam, right? Repairing of the world. It comes from a Kabbalistic idea, which is based on verses in the Torah, that the idea of repairing. But what do you repair? Something that's broken. The world in which we live can be broken, where people are hostile to each other, disrespectful to each other, and other ways where societies and communities can be splintered and fragmented and fractured. Tikkun is the process of repairing. So in the Kabbalistic paradigms I'm referring to, Tayu comes first. Tayu is described as a paradigm, as, an, as a reality, a dimension, where there's very intense energies. But they're so intense that the containers cannot contain them. So the containers shatter. So think of it this way. Imagine a brilliant teacher teaching students. And the brilliant teacher gets so carried away with his brilliance, he, he forgets to measure how to spoon-feed the ideas to his students, and he overwhelms them. And they get all confused. Another example. The Talmud talks about a famine in Israel. And one of the, one of the sages prays to God to send the rains. And yes, it starts raining. Problem is, it starts raining in buckets, flooding the fields. And you know, flooding the fields can be just as destructive as 
dry, arid or dry fields. So he prays again and says, send them down, send the rain in drops. Because too much good we cannot contain. If you ask for a blessing, and se- instead of getting something you can hold on to put into your basket, you just get someone gushing and gushing. It's like love, untempered love, can end up killing someone also. You can kill someone with love. The key thing is not just to give love, but the key is also to give it in a way that can be measured and contained by the one that receives. So the great teachers are not the ones that necessarily show all their brilliance. The ones that have restraint, and they know how to spoon feed, they know how to moderate and to tailor the message to the particular student or recipient. So the world of Tayyu is just wild, intense energies. It's like people are just... Uh, it's en- energies that are wild and uncontained. So when they come to the containers and the containers are fragile, it would be like, like g- g- uh, gushing water rushing into small containers and just shatter because it's rushing at such speed and such intensity. Comes the world of Tikkun, the second paradigm, and corrects that. How does it correct it? It repairs it by slowing down the flow of the energy and expanding the container. So the expression uses that in the world of Toyo, the energies are very intense and the containers are very fragile, small. And the world of Tikkun is the opposite. The energies are restrained and the containers are expanded and wide, which is, of course, the key to any type of healthy balance. In our human body, you see this all the time. If your eye was not shaped with a proper pupil and the proper focus, the sun and light would burn right through it. What, do you, what happens when, for example, when you go into a dark room, your pupils dilate. When you go into a bright room, they uh, expand. Why? Because you're able to take the light in. But let's say you look at the sun without any filters, without sunglasses. What will happen? Too much light is as destructive. It's as bad as no light at all. Maybe even worse. In life, our, I'm sorry, in our human bodies, you'll see constant regulators that not just there's a flow, but the flow has to be a perfect pace. Take human blood circulation. We know that if you don't, if you don't have, if, you don't, if the blood is not thick enough, it won't clot. But if there's too many clots, and, and it won't clot, and it could hemorrhage. But if there's too many clots, there can be a block. What happens when a stroke, God forbid, a stroke is that there's a clot that doesn't allow, the, impedes the flow. So what they do is put blood thinner. But if the thin blood is thin too much, it can create a hemorrhage. So you have to have the perfect balance that the blood should be thick enough and not too thin, not too thick. Everything in life, you put food in your mouth, can't just gobble down the food. It goes into your gullet. Your throat, with your teeth will, will, of course, break down the food, be able to fit through your throat as it goes down through the food pipe. And what happens afterwards? The body goes into a whole series of processes that break down the food, expel the waste, and derive only the nutrients, and are turned into blood. Now, if you look at the food, and then here's the blood, it's a very big distance how it got from this piece of meat or this uh, fruit or vegetable, into your bloodstream. Because the body knows exactly how to regulate. What's diabetes? That the pancreas is not producing enough insulin, so it's not breaking down the sugar and the glucose. So, and that can also go in two directions. Too low sugar, too high sugar. Anywhere you look in the body, I'm just using a few examples. There's nothing that does not have a gas and brakes. The gas is the flow, and the brakes control the flow. So the world of Tayu is essentially a paradigm where there's an imbalance. Too much flow, and therefore shatters the containers. Tikkun, the next paradigm, is where the balance is discovered. Harmony. Now we all go through this in our lives. I'll give you an example. Usually in our teenage years, our adolescent years, which can be awkward, you're just growing into your own. You often can do things, wild stuff, because you don't yet have the maturity of knowing how to season. So you'll see a lot of young people have a lot of energy, a lot of rebellious energy, and which energy itself is great, but it's untempered. So it can become destructive. The key is not to eliminate the energy, the key is to channel it, to harness it, to season it. 
So everything in life is that element. The students of Rabbi Kiva represent the first paradigm. Great energy, unbelievable energy, but to the point that it was not containable. And therefore the energies clashed and shattered their very beings. That was what they represent. And we're taught about it because we need to know that risk. We need to know in any given situation. You bring together a few brilliant people in a brainstorm. If they don't have a measure of humility, a measure of tempering the flow, what you're going to have is a total clash of egos and clash of opinions, and you won't get anything done. On the contrary, you'll only get something destructive, which would never happen if you had smaller people there. It's precisely because they're so brilliant that if they don't have, you don't have a conductor, if you don't have a coordinator, a facilitator, you're just going to have a lot of clashing. So you don't want to eliminate their strengths. You want to, temper, you want to harness it. And that's the paradigm. Any form of mediation, let's say mediation, mar- marital counseling, or mediation between two friends or two partners in business, or between two people of disagreements. What is going on? What's going on, the people of disagreements, besides, I'm not getting down to criminal activity, but let's say both have good points to be made. What is a good mediator going to do? He's going to slow down and temper and season each person's position and find a meeting place that's a compromise. Because sometimes two intense positions just clash with each other. Life is not about right and wrong, where you know one person is all the way right, the other person takes two to tango, and there's no way there could be a relationship if both people don't somewhat know how to be humble and times compromise. And the truth is, a good loving relationship is not even compromise. It's understanding that there are more important things than just being right. It's making it work. It's just about being right, then it's just an ego trip, or it's just like, I want to be right, your own pride. That's not the goal. The goal is that it should work. And if the human body had pride as an issue, nothing would work. Imagine all the organs clashing with each other because each one wants predominant. The beauty is, exactly like I mentioned before, symphony is having different musical notes, different instruments, different musicians, and they're all coordinated in one harmony. So it's a harmony within diversity is sometimes the way it's described, the world of Tikkun. The students of Rabbi Akiva, 24,000 that is, were the model of a dysfunctional energy. And Rashim Ebayachah, the day of Lagba Omer, is a model for healthy balance. And that's why he survived, because he knew how to balance. It wasn't that he didn't have intense energy, but he knew how to harness it, he knew how to control it. So going back now to our discussion about respect, respect lies at the heart of, um, as I said, the recognition that every one of us is part of a larger symphony. And that does not mean you don't have important value and indispensable value, but you are one piece of it all. So in the classic words of Hillel, if I'm not going to be for myself, who will be for me? Yes, self-respect. You need to know your role. You need to know that your role is indispensable. It's not negligible. You're, you are needed, and you have to rise to the occasion. But at the same time, the second half, if I'm only for myself, if I'm only for myself, what am I? Is stating that other people also have their unique role. Not that they cannot replace your role. But they have your, the unique, their unique role, and you need them as much as they need you. When a person comes to understand that, you have the best of all worlds. Because you have your contribution, and you turn to others for their contribution, and no one is taking away anyone's turf. No one is stealing your rights. It's interesting, the founding fathers captured it. E pluribus unum. It means from many one. The idea that every human being has individual rights. You know, one of the arguments for the monarchies of, the, of old... Of control, of, of control by one sovereign power was that people will just go to war with each other if you give them too much independence. If you allow them to exercise their individuality, they'll just eat each other up alive. So we need one king, one supreme ruler. Everyone is subject to this king. One little problem here. This king is also a human being. And what makes him have more rights than everybody else? So yes, maybe he suppresses everybody else, but in the name of what? Of his total power. And total power, as we know, totally corrupts. And ultimately, take advantage. So fine, there were times there were benevolent monarchs and kings, but many times there weren't. The concept of democracy 
or the concept of individuality, individual freedoms that was established, especially in the 17th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, was not was debated at length. Some people said, no, it won't work because individuality, let it out of the bag, people will eat each other up alive. And you need to have that type of one ruler. And the answer was, no, that's not true. You can have individuality, and obviously you need a system of checks and balances and law and order, and you need to have um, justice systems and all that. But you don't need to suppress people's individuality for them to coexist. You just need to harness it. You need to harness it because, yes, there'll be clashing energies if you don't. But you don't have to go one extreme to the other. It's not like take away all their rights and let only one supreme ruler. Or the opposite, let everybody do whatever they want, which is anarchy. Like I said before with the blood thinner, not too thick and not too thin. You have to find the perfect balance. And Hillel's statement is exactly right. Everyone has their right to pursue what they need to pursue. But at the same time, they can have no right to take away someone else's rights. And on the contrary, to recognize that we all complement each other. Now, I know it's easier said than done, but the first thing we need to state it, we need to say it. We need to declare and define and understand, cognitively at least, the importance of this, of this, uh, this respect. So with this in mind, then respect, respect lies at the heart of human, the human psyche, the human value, human value, and it will tell you right away how well you um, respect others and how well you can relate to um, and be able to co- coexist, and more than coexist, cooperate with others. You see this as well in the animal kingdom, you see it everywhere. Even though people like to say, one second, there's predators and prey and all of that. First of all, even that has a balance. You'll see predators will not, they'll pre- they'll, they will not ever destroy and, you, and, and cause extinction of their prey. Because then they're undermining themselves. It's humans that have the power to create extinction. You will never find in the wild predators destroying all their prey. Which is why prey in nature always multiply more than the predators. You'll always see, whatever is consumed more, multiplies more. There are more vegetables on this planet than all the animals put together, because they're most consumed. There are more smaller insects than there are larger predators, because the balance must be kept. In Yellowstone Park, when they eliminated the wolves, you know what happened? The elk began to multiply to such numbers that they completely destroyed all the all the, all, the, all, the, all the vegetation in Yellowstone, in big parts of it. And they had to bring wolves back to control the elk population. So everything has a balance. And not only that, you'll see how animals treat it, even animals, how they treat each other. I heard from someone that had a um, Montana, they say, is the last natural wilderness in the United States. So there's an area in Montana where people live, but they live in the, on the, in the wilderness. And there, there's a place where, uh, this is what someone described to me once, there's a river where the salmon come to spawn. Now, salmon, of course, are prey to a lot of animals, including bears and including eagles. There are many eagles. And this is a scenario that, uh, that she described to me. She said, like, eagles perch in the, the cliffs and the mountains of stone on the edges of the river, and they are waiting for the salmon to spawn. They go upstream. And here's the interesting thing. Thousands of eagles. There's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of salmon. And there's only one point when, this, when the eagles will all suddenly swoop down within five seconds, and they will eat the salmon. They will not go five seconds before or five seconds after. They will not touch a salmon until it actually spawns and releases its eggs. And they will not touch a salmon once it's dead, because remember, salmon die after they spawn. So they will only go when the salmon releases its eggs and right before the salmon dies. That's when they will swoop down. They just know that's the balance. Because if they get the salmon before they drop the eggs, then all the salmon will die out. And they won't touch a salmon after it's dead. They want a salmon alive. So it's interesting, just one example. There's hundreds of such examples of coexistence 
of, you see, even though it seemed like every creature is selfish, no, but they give complete respect. I use the respect intentionally to another creature for its moment because, it, because they need each other. And they understand that complementation. And will not do something that will harm the other. So the challenge, of course, is in our lives, human beings don't have necessarily this awareness and this sensitivity, and we can become extremely selfish and narcissistic, especially when we don't have our own self-respect. So the lesson from the 24 students, 1,000 students, is a very clear one in the need to have constant balance and harnessing of your energy. And the stronger your personality you are, the more you need that harnessing. Harnessing, not eliminating your strengths, but harnessing them, directing, guiding them, steering them, taking, using like laser energy, focusing them. And we've also see the importance of respect because that is the critical component of how we really look at each other as being part of the divine plan, a cosmic plan where every detail, like in the computer program or in the human body, is necessary. And not one extra note, and not one note less than necessary. It's exactly the amount you need. And, exactly, and not more, not less. So that type of balance is all due to the respect for each individual and as they all come together in one big synergy. So when you think about it, in that sense, um, you realize the importance of respecting another. When you realize the importance, then you become more sensitive to it. Many of us are disrespectful to each other, not because we're deliberately, maliciously being disrespectful, because we're not thinking about it. It's easy to dismiss somebody. It's easy to ignore someone. It's easy to just, uh, to just uh, insult them. But when you understand who you're talking to, that you're talking to a person that is put here by God, the same God that put you here, and you understand their value, you, t- you, you pause. Every person deserves your respect because they have God's respect. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily you have to agree with them. It doesn't even mean that, that you have to cooperate with them because let's say a criminal also has is here for a reason. But if a person abuses their lives and does, of course, damaging things, that doesn't mean you have to respect their crimes. But there's an expression, may the sinner be, the sins be erased, not the sinner. So it's not the person that is ever invalidate. You may invalidate their behavior. Someone does something really inappropriate, doesn't mean you have to respect anything they do. People make big mistakes. But you never, ever validate the person. That takes effort. That takes a certain discretion of how to do that. But that also lies at the heart of this entire um, discussion here. And when you have that, it's guaranteed. There's no relationship. There's no friendship. There's no interaction that will not benefit from that type of approach. You know, um, parents sometimes have challenges. Some people, parents can be angry people. They can yell. They can be verbally abusive, even physically abusive to children. Now, of course, it's very painful to see such a thing. And the key thing, the way the Torah puts it, is you don't own your children. What right do you have to touch a child, even if it's your own child? What right do you have to yell at somebody? Since when do you, who gave you that right? Now, when people do that, parents do that, they usually are not out of control. Or they, or they grew up in homes where anger and abuse was acceptable. A, an, a, was an ex, a, what was unacceptable became acceptable. But one of the things that a person comes to, if you want to really grow through that, is you have to realize, what right do you have? This is a soul that God sent to this world for your caretaking. God gave you a gift and said, I want you to watch over this gift. Do you have a right to touch that gift? You have a right to yell at it, to hurt it. You're hurting God. God gave you a gift. And the same can apply to any given situation. In addition to the common sense that we all have, that say spouses should respect each other and love each other, but there's also, when you throw into the dimension, the divine dimension, it adds a sense of urgency. Because when you respect another, you know what you're really doing? You're also respecting yourself because... The same value you, they have, you have. If you do not value another person, uh, you're ultimately devaluing yourself as well because your only value is for the same reason they have value, and that is because God put you here. 
The only reason you're a musician in this, comp- in this symphony is because you were chosen to be, which is exactly the same right that the other musicians were chosen to be. So it's a meditation to think about. I know it's not easy to just implement because people who have un- unhealthy um, tools or lack of tools and just react reflexively without thinking, all these meditations you could say are meaningless, but they're not. Because it's t- you can think about it when, when you're not in that type of uh, volatile state or uh, a deeply uh, uh, agitated state. When people things are calmer, think about it. Write it down for yourself. Write down why you should respect yourself, why you respect others. Think about it every day. Make it a mantra. Keep repeating it. And you'll be surprised. Slowly, cognitive conditioning ends up impacting emotional conditioning. So even though your emotions may be out of control and you may not know how to always harness them, but cognitively, that's the correction. So the correction that happens in the paradigm called tikkun, what really gives tikkun the power to remedy and and repair the dysfunction and what I call the shattering and the chaos of toyu, is its cognitive power. Children, for example, just get emotionally have a tantrum. An adult is supposed to have a mind. Your mind is supposed to reflect and supposed to temper and, 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 and what's the word? Reflect and pause before you move. So if someone says something, you may be, you want to react immediately. Don't react. Reflect on it. You could always react later. So it's the cognitive life raft, the cognitive skills that we have that gives us the ability to temper the emotional passions of Toyo. The students of Rebbe Akiva were emotionally passionate for good reasons, but it got out of control. And the balance is, unlike Omer, the Rajbi model, which is to find that balance. So there's a fascinating story, which I will, a Lagba Omer story, which I'll uh, conclude with. Rabbi Akiva, I'm sorry, Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bayechai, the time of the Romans, they decreed and they passed, they, they, um, they condemned Rajbi to death because he was teaching and learn, learning and teaching Torah, which was forbidden. So he had to escape the authorities and he went to hide in a cave with his son, Rabbi Loza, for 12 years until the decree was over. 12 years later, as the Talmud tells the whole story how, how, how refined he became. Twelve years away from civilization. So you can imagine he was in this most spiritual, refined state. When he came back to, to the civilization, he saw the pettiness of people that were so involved in, in nonsense that the Talmud says whatever he looked at began to burn. Physically or figuratively. Because he couldn't tolerate it. So God says to him, you're not ready to come back to civilization. Go back for one more year, 13th year, bar mitzvah year. You need more maturity. Now you can think, one second, this is like unbelievable. He's such a spiritually high state, but that's toyu. That's destructive. For good reasons. It was like the sun shining without filters. But human beings are not on your level. You need to learn to work with them. You can't destroy them. In, in, in your passion, in your intensity. That's why zealotry is never acceptable in Jewish thought. Moderation. Teach, inspire. The 13th year, it says, when he came out the thir- one more year from the cave, then the Talmud says, whatever he saw that was broken, he fixed. Literally, tikkun. Instead of seeing something broken and not tolerating it and destroying it, he fixed everything. So, which was a greater level? You could think the 12th level was much more intense, but it was not in the world of energies and containers. You need balance. And that's what Rabbi, Rabbi Hashpi achieved in the 13th year. And it's one of the lessons he teaches us on this day, like Bomber, it's a day of unity. You find a unification of all communities, Ashkenazim, Sfardim, Hasidim, non-Hasidim, all types gathered together in Miran and other communities to celebrate this, that which unifies us. So we're diverse, but harmony within diversity. That's, that's its lesson that we learn from, from this day of Lag Bomer, Hashem Bebe
And it's interesting because because in our own personal lives, this is also a key thing. And I could speak to you as a writer, as a speaker, communicator. One of the key things in communication and in speaking or in any type of creativity is not how much you present, how much you give. is that you give it in a way that's exactly right, the right measure. You'll sometimes see a speaker that presents great ideas. They're brilliant. But it will overwhelm you. And it'll confuse you. Because either it's coming too fast or disorganized. Same thing in writing. Sometimes you'll find a page, wow, brilliant stuff, but you can't contain it. The key thing is, not, is to know not just what you're giving, but how you give it that, what measure. As I mentioned before with the raindrops, the key thing in communicating is not just what you say, but the pace you say it. That you allow the raindrop to be absorbed into the ground before the next drop comes. If it goes too fast or goes too slow, the balance is lost. So this lesson of respect is part of that. It's the respect for the students or for the people you communicate with, just as the respect between colleagues and respect between teacher to student and student to teacher. Same thing with spouses, same thing with friends, same thing with co-workers. Nothing in our world cannot benefit from this approach because everything in our world is relationships. And if you're, a relationship means that there's your role, there's the other's role, and there's the role that you come and join in a synthesis. To uh, quote the Kotzka Rebbe, which I often quote, he says about relationships, that if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, I am not and you are not. But if I am I because I am I, and you are you because you are you, I am and you are. Beyond the poetry, it means this, that if your identity is defined by another person, in other words, you don't know who you are, you look at another to juxtapose yourself, and that person's identified by you, you won't be and that person won't be because it's not being self-generated. It's not from self-respect. But if I am I because I am I, meaning it generates from me, and you are you because you are you, then they can come together like this, like links in a chain. Both are intact, and they both complement each other. If not, they end up annihilating each other. Because every human being needs to have their space and individuality, and at the same time, their complementation and connection to another. So this is somewhat of an overview on the topic called respect. And hopefully you can use some of these tools in your lives. And as always, this is part of the Meaningful Life Center's life skill series, which is to uh, provide and offer insights into the human spirit and most importantly tools, skills and tools. And we have a whole array of different uh, offerings like this. You can go to MeaningfulLife.com and you can find it. If you're familiar with the Omer book, The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer that I have wrote, there's also a, a, a great app called the My Omer free app, which actually goes through these 49 days. Now we're day 33. And each day is another introspective day of evaluating, examining, and improving that part of your emotional psyche. So if you aren't familiar with that, check it out. It's pretty interesting and very useful because it helps you really empower every aspect of your life. So thank you very much, everyone. Everyone have a very blessed and refined and respectful week to yourself and to everyone else. Until next Wednesday, this is Simon Jacobson, Wednesday Night Live.